brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. And we pray your blessing on it, Lord, as we hear it move in our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I used to be silly enough to think that if we celebrated Advent every single year, it would eventually get boring and old. As if exploring this truth that God took flesh is kind of like bringing a bucket to church and saying, hey, let's explore the bucket. And after a couple of minutes, you're like, I think we've seen what there is to see. We know this. It's very familiar to us now. And if I said every year I'm going to bring that bucket, we're going to explore it again, you'd probably be pretty sick of it after a while. And I've, I tended to think about, you know, Jesus, you know, God took flesh. It's kind of like that. But, you know, if you and I were to go to, down to Robert Moses Beach and stand on the shore there and I were to say to you, all equipment provided, we are going to explore this ocean. A thousand lifetimes would not be enough to see all there is to see. And that is how it is with God becoming man. This year I'd like to let the Apostle Peter guide us into a vast region of this ocean. A region that actually is kind of unfamiliar to a lot of Christians today. And this is it. That God took our human nature with a goal, and that was that we would share his divine nature. God took our human nature so we could share his divine nature, so we could partake in the nature of God himself. Now that probably sounds a little intense, and we really do need to be careful here because there's some things we would not want to say in saying that, but can I give you guys verses three and four in your text? You've got it there in your notes if you look at it. I wanna give you verses three and four in pastoral English. So you don't need to read the text right now, but just this is my, this is Ben Miller paraphrase. This is pastoral English. Verses three and four. God's power, friends, has given you everything you need to live and be like him. How? Through knowing him, the one who called you by showing you his own glorious excellence in his son. And in that display of God's excellence, he made awesome promises that you will share it because he has freed you from the ruin of a sinful world. So even as you believe God's promises, get busy adding excellence to your faith. God's power has given you everything you need to live and be like him. How? Through knowing him, the one who called you by showing you his own glorious excellence in his son. And in that display of his excellence, God made awesome promises that you will share that excellence because he has freed you from the ruin of a sinful world. So even as you believe the promises, get busy adding excellence to your faith. This is not hell insurance Christianity. You know, I've got my hell insurance card. I won't go to hell. I'm good. This is not survive till the rapture Christianity. 
This is not get through your days, pay your mortgage, go to church, be a good person, Christianity. This is not save America, Christianity. This is something else. This is God restoring man in God's image. Herman Bobink says it quite strongly. He says, what man is in miniature, God is in greatness, infinite greatness. As a creature, man is absolutely dependent on God, yet as a man, he is related to God like a son to his father. That's what this is about. And a lot of the church today, I really think, doesn't really buy into the fact that this is God's plan that you should be like him, that you should share God's nature. Never obviously being God, but being like him in very profound ways. That's the other side of Christmas. Yes, God took flesh, God took human nature, so we could partake of his nature. That's the other side of Christmas. Now, I thought about that this week as that phrase rambled around in my mind, and you know, if, if I say to you, God took our nature so we can share his nature, so we can be really and truly like God, my guess is a lot of you probably, and I feel this too, you have a gut reaction that says, well, that's impossible, and you just tune out. You know, Pastor Miller's going to talk some nonsense for 30 minutes, we're going to go have some pie. Because if you take it really seriously, God, God actually, it is his intent that you be like him. I think that can start to feel kind of crushing. I mean, where do you start? How do you proceed? How much progress are you really supposed to make in being like God? I mean, if I go down to the ocean, you say, Ben, swim the ocean. I mean, it doesn't matter whether I swim out 20 feet or 2,000 feet. I'm not swimming the ocean, man. I'm just still, like, cruising along the shore. I haven't even, I've, I've got, not gotten even started no matter how far I can go out. And that can, can feel like that. Being like God, I mean, you know, no matter how far you get into it, are you even really started? You, I probably told you about the high school girl years ago. I said to her, have you ever, have you ever thought about being like Jesus? She said, that's crazy. I could never be like Jesus. I wouldn't even try. And I think a lot of us feel that. Like, what's the point? But it's interesting that Peter gives us a way forward here. And if you look at God's loving goal for this, in verse 8, you'll notice God, his goal is not a life of misery, a life of you know, crushing burden. His, his goal for us is that we'll be fruitful in knowing Jesus. So you end, you're not Christians who are stalled and stagnant. You're not a shell of a Christian. You are alive. And this is not a pass-fail test, right? It's a lively, lifelong apprenticeship in becoming like our Father and like our brother Jesus. And you'll notice it begins there in verse 5 with the foundation of faith. Let's just talk about that for a moment. The foundation of faith. Add to your faith these other qualities. The journey into God's excellence the journey into God's glorious excellence, being like him, it begins, Peter says, with faith. And you know faith is not us bringing something at all to God. Faith is fundamentally receiving what he says in verse 3, God's power has given to us. He says in verse 3, God's power has granted to you to be like him. This is what distinguishes the Christian pursuit of excellence from many other you know, self-help programs or even religious programs in the world. This is not Ben Miller pulling himself up by his bootstraps and adding excellence to himself. God has given to us, by his power, everything we need to live and be like him. And we believe that. We believe that the journey into God's excellence from start to finish is God's gift. It is receiving what we have been given, not 
hoping and grasping for something we haven't been given, but receiving what God has actually given to us. It is becoming what God has made us. Now, we're going to see through these weeks that this is a rigorous journey. This is going to demand a lot from us. But we come to the rigors of this road with hearts that are really restful before the Lord because Peter says to us there in verse 2, our hearts are at rest because grace, God's favor, and peace have been, I love this word, multiplied, super abundantly overflowed to us through knowing God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So we come at this and our hearts are at rest. This is not, it's, it's a rigorous journey, but it's not, there's no lash, there, there's no you know, fearful consequence of you know, somehow you know, failing the test and just you know, the hammer dropping. It is becoming what we are. It is receiving what we've been given. That's faith. So become what you are, Peter is saying. Become what God has promised. You will be this. Work out what you have been given. Work out what you've received from God's hand. And it, it's, I love the fact that in God's providence today, this is a baptism Sunday, as we're thinking about faith, becoming what we are, receiving what we've been given. Because I don't want to sound apocalyptic, although I have tendencies that way these days. I really believe that our society stands on the brink of a precipice. And this is why. Because we are raising an entire generation to have a lifelong, incurable identity crisis, as we heard in the baptism. If you look at the average 15-year-old today, this 15-year-old, average 15-year-old, has been catechized since infancy that he or she must, it is a mandate for life, it is your big thing to do in life, you must, without help, without anyone interfering, and without any limitations, you must answer the question, who am I? What do I choose to be? What do I want for myself? You must. That is, that is authenticity. That is being a genuine human being. If anyone stands in the way of that, they are an oppressor. Meanwhile, as we are demanding that and insisting that is the good life, that is the real thing, we are systematically dismantling as a society anything whatsoever that could possibly answer a much different and much more important question, which is whose am I? Certainly you're not God's. Certainly your religious tradition cannot provide any help here. Certainly, you know, your people, your family, if anything, those are probably obstacles. We don't even really, in friendships anymore, we're not even really able to think of ourselves as belonging, as being able to say, I, am, I belong to that person, even in friendship or even in romance, because the reality is in the modern world, romance ties you down. It limits your freedom. It, it hampers you being yourself. So freedom and love are even opposed to each other, and we're just dismantling everything that could help anyone answer the question, whose am I? Meanwhile, you've got to figure out who you are. And it's burdensome. It's an exhausting life. And here is a, a certainty. In 30 years, all these 15-year-olds will be biologically 45. They will be the adults. And what happens in a society that has been raised like this? And what an opportunity for Christians. I love watching baptized children grow up knowing who they are because they know whose they are. Because they know that the God of heaven has named them with his name. He has said, you are mine. 
And in the story of my kingdom, you have a place, you have a purpose. And it's not just a bare naming, right? It isn't just a, a mere entrance into you know, this company of people who are somehow kind of marked in some odd way. You know, when God takes us as his own, we belong to him. It isn't even just forgiveness of sins. I mean, that, that's utterly amazing that we come to God in, in the, the total mess that we are and all the sin is forgiven. Every way I've wronged God, he, he is merciful and he forgives me because he has already visited his wrath on Jesus instead of on me. And so I'm free from that burden of, of guilt before God. And, and it's more than that because Jesus was perfectly obedient and all that obedience of Jesus is given to me and it's mine now. And I can stand before God as righteous as Jesus because he, he gave me Jesus' righteousness. And it's not just even all that. Now, because all that could happen in sort of God's courtroom, then God takes us home and we become his sons and daughters and that's where the real belonging begins. You are sons and daughters of the living God who are going to live in his house and rule in his kingdom forever and ever. That is whose you are. And when Peter talks about faith here, he wants our faith to grab hold of the full scope of whose we are. We are children, which means, brothers and sisters, hear me, we are little images. You know, for better or worse, my kids run around in the world and they are little millers. You are little Christs, little sons and daughters of the living God. You are the miniatures of God on earth. Your calling, your, re- your identity, is to walk around in the world showing the world God's character and to do the works of your Father in heaven. That's actually who you are because of whose you are. Faith grabs hold of that, and so that is what we must become. So, Peter says, add to that faith in whose you are, add excellence. So we move now from the foundation of faith to the exertions of virtue or excellence. Add moral excellence. Now we're going to see throughout the series that moral excellence includes all the rest of this. It includes knowledge, and self-control, and steadfastness, and godliness, and brotherly affection, and love. It includes all of that, but today I really just want briefly to focus just on this phrase, add moral excellence. And I like to consider that this phrase calls us to exercise three things. We'll move, move through this quickly. First, in our world today, if you and I are going to add moral excellence, that calls us to exercise some real imagination. If I say to you, because you are God's children, you are to be like him in the world because you are his and you are his children, and I say, now add moral excellence to your life, this is going to take some imagination. We cannot assume, it seems to me, in 2022, that we even really know what moral excellence is anymore. I think it is safe to say that most of us, even in the church, more than we realize, have diseased moral imaginations. And think about this with me, if you will. You and I live in a world, obviously, that is constantly saying no one can tell you what's good or what's bad. And yet, do you ever notice that along with that mantra, no one can tell you what's good, no one can tell you, no one can define excellence for you, along with that mantra, there are just thousands and thousands of voices in our ears all the time telling us what's good and bad. I mean, you listen to the noise of our world today. How many voices are telling you, you know, you, you really should do that and you really shouldn't do that. You should be like them, you know, Good heavens, don't be like them. Just voices and voices. And even in marketing, you know, we're also used to advertising and marketing. What is marketing doing? It is showing you that the smart and the glamorous and the popular people know X. 
do Y, avoid Z. Obviously, that's what smart, glamorous, popular people do. And that is a very subtle or maybe not so subtle way of constantly telling you that's the good life over there and that's certainly the bad life over there. And you just have noise talking to you all the time. That's the good life. That's excellence over there. That's how it should be. That's surely not how it should be. Don't be like them. Those are the losers. Noises, voices. Now someone will say, you know, well, just ignore all the voices. Ignore all the old people who think they know because they're not... Young people anymore, you know, ignore your parents, ignore the marketers, ignore, just follow your feelings. Just follow what you feel is good. That's the place to find the answer, what is excellence, what is goodness. And you know, I had to, I had to wrestle with this as I thought about preparing the sermon because I wouldn't even, brethren, this is so infantile, I wouldn't even spend time on it except that it is really what people believe today. It is actually very, very popular that if you really want to know what is good, you just need to look inside your feelings, your deepest feelings, and follow those, and that will be excellent. That will be what's really good and excellent for you. And yet, of course, it doesn't take even 10 minutes of life in the real world to realize that feeling that something is good does not make it good. There are people, for example, who enjoy bullying. Please. And faced with certain kinds of goodness, you think about a mom throwing herself, let's say, in front of a car to save the life of her child. Faced with some kinds of goodness, you know, no one wants to hear, you know, I'm not feeling it. If you don't recognize the goodness and excellence and that kind of self-sacrificing love, there's something wrong with your feeler. The moral quality of something, the value of something, whether it ought or ought not to be, whether it is excellent or rubbish, obviously cannot be reduced to my feelings about it. But it's even worse than that in the modern world. If we really are all going to feel and decide for ourselves, this is what's good and that's what's bad, we're all going to do that entirely on our own. We are never going to be able to live together. You know, I'll do what's, I'll, I'll decide good for me, you decide good for you, I'll do me, you do you, we'll all be fine. We will be fine until one of us turns out to be a narcissist or a sociopath or a liar or a thief or a killer or a predator or just ends up being authentically, because you must follow your feelings, authentically envious, greedy, selfish, spiteful, lazy, unkind, ungrateful, etc. because that's just who I am. What happens when your good life is at my expense? We cannot live together this way, and it's obvious. Well, then maybe you just think we're back to just, then do we have to do what the majority of the group tells us is good or bad? We all kind of have to conform to the majority. You know, excellence is defined by the 51%. And this is the world we now live in. And no one's, I've asked many people, both Christians and non-Christians, to somehow interact with this, and, you know, how do you explain this? And there are no answers for it. So we have to imagine differently as God's people. And what I'm about to say now is probably the most crucial thing I want to try to get across today. Add moral excellence requires us to exercise imagination. Think of it maybe this way. If you want to know how to use a machine or to service and care for a machine, if you're going to do that well, you have to have some idea what that machine is designed to do you have to have some idea what it is for. You know, we probably all heard the guy who tried to use his lawnmower to trim his hedges and got really hurt and sued the company. And 
you know, you just say, well, obviously you didn't understand the machine you were using. If you're going to use a machine, you have to know what it's designed for. Or to use another illustration, if you want to know which direction to go on a trip, you clearly must know where you are going. Should I turn here or turn there? How do you, the only way to know that is if you know where you're going. And when we talk about excellence, when Peter says, add to what you believe about God, whose you are, add to that faith moral excellence. When we talk about moral excellence, we are obviously not just evaluating the goodness or the badness of this or that act that we do, this or that turn in the road. You know, that was a good thing to do. That was a bad thing to do. That was a good turn. That was a bad turn. We're not just talking about that. We're not just talking about this or that use of the human machine. We're talking about something that is so much deeper than that. We're really exploring the question, is this person acting in accord with what he is meant to be? Is this person acting in accord with where she is meant to go? And can I just encourage you, you're going to have to talk to people in the world today and be able to somehow in a loving way kind of put this out for people to consider and we ourselves need to consider it. If there is no answer to those questions, brothers and sisters, if there is no way that humans are meant to be, there is nowhere that humans are meant to go, there is no sort of end toward which we should aspire, that's how people ought to be. That's where they ought to end up. That's what they ought to arrive at as they grow. If there is nothing out there like that, then to speak of excellence is meaningless. And frankly, to speak of badness is meaningless. If there's nowhere to go, then you can never fail to arrive. There's no such thing as a wrong turn if there's no destination. If this thing is not meant for anything, then it can never fail to be what it ought to be because there's no way it ought to be, and so there's no way it can ever be anything that could be complained about. Yes? This is just straightforward. And so really when we speak about excellence, it isn't just, you know, do this good thing, do that bad thing, follow this rule, don't do that, turn, don't take that turn in the road. We're really talking about excellence, moral excellence. It's so much deeper. I think of it as an alignment. You know when your car is out of alignment, it keeps drifting? Excellence is an alignment within myself and in my relations toward a goodness which I ought to be, which I am meant to be. It's an orientation of desire and energy and focus. It's an inclination. We could call it a love that aims toward the fulfillment of what I'm meant to be. We could even call that flourishing. There is that in my heart and soul that with all of my weaving in the lane, I have an inclination toward that which I am meant to be. That's really excellence. I'm not just making it up as I go along. That is what I'm meant to be. That is where I'm to arrive. And there's that alignment toward that. I've got a friend who says, you might, be, you might have your car turn around backwards, but as long as you're going the right direction, you're still heading in the right direction. And that's true. And that's why as Peter contrasts excellence, notice what he says is the contrast with excellence in verse 4. The opposite of excellence is the corruption of sinful desire. 
It is the misdirection of desire, the misorientation of desire. This is why the idea that you can just, whatever your orientation is, is fine. That is just absolutely morally impossible. Because there is such a thing as a misorientation of desire, a, a disordering of desire that Paul says, will, Peter says, will land you in ruin. It will land you in corruption. It will be the undoing of yourself. And God, he says, has freed you from that. You are now his, so add moral excellence. You know, we still actually have this in the modern world in stories. I love watching movies and TV shows because what I, I noticed something interesting. You know, for all the talk about, oh, you know, morals, you know, be, be yourself. Have you ever noticed always when a show starts or a movie starts, you can start to pick up pretty quickly on who the people are you don't trust. Something's off with this character. I don't trust their intentions. I don't know what they want. I'm suspicious. I wouldn't let my kids hang around with this person. Something, you know, and we feel that viscerally because that is just true to our nature. We understand there's a way we ought to be. And so when we as Christians think about moral excellence, this is not nebulous for us. It's not like this weird, like, you know, somewhere out in the horizon, this thing called excellence. The Bible tells us that we behold, and Peter says it here, we behold excellence in all of its glory, in all of its transforming power in, in our life with God. You and I as his children, we are constantly living around his character, his plans, his works. We're constantly hearing his law, hearing his wisdom, hearing his promises. We're, we're walking alongside of people who have walked a long time with this God and their lives have a kind of shine with God's goodness and excellence. And Peter says, add that. And we'll explore more as we go in coming weeks. And all of this, this excellence, it is yours, he says, through knowing God and knowing Jesus. Much more quickly, adding moral excellence certainly calls for an exercise of imagination. It calls quickly for two other things too, obviously. One is an exercise of humility. An exercise of humility, because it is not easy, brothers and sisters, to really look in the mirror and say, I am not yet what God means me to be. I am not yet what God means me to be. I mean, we would all say that theoretically. I'm a humble enough guy to say, oh, I'm not what God wants me to be. But real humility, I think, comes in being able to ask somebody in my life who knows me really well and loves me really honestly, can you please tell me how specifically I am not yet what I'm meant to be? Can you look at my life, brother, sister, tell me how am I not what I ought to be in knowledge, in self-control, in steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love. Can I ask you guys, between you and the Lord, obviously, but I would really encourage you, do that with someone. Can you imagine being part of a church where everybody in the church was that zeroed in on becoming what God has said we are to be in Christ? That they were having serious conversations together. Can you help me see myself and see where I am not yet what God would have me to be? What kind of a church would that end up being? How much spiritual vibrancy getting us off our, you know, easy comforts to push into what God has called us to. And we can exercise, I just want to keep saying, we can exercise that kind of humility because we have hope. See, for children of God, our on-the-wayness, we still have a ways to go. That is humbling, but it's never hopeless because God will keep his promises to me and to you. He will make us what he has called us to be. He will make us like him. And so it's in that hope that we can be humble and say, man, I have a ways to go. Help me see it, Lord. That takes humility. And finally, diligence. Add moral excellence. It's a call to exercise diligence. 
in the Greek, the idea is make every effort. Like if I told you right now your house is burning down, how would you drive home? That's how you go after this. With some passion, with some drive, with some hunger, with some exertion. Goodness takes work, Peter says. You do not drift into goodness. You do not drift into excellence. Well, you know, I kind of sat around and eventually it just kind of morphed. That's not how it works. But I'm loved, so I can come at this with a restful heart. But as I rest in whose I am, God's love for me through Jesus, his promises that this, I will get to the end of this journey. He will bring me where he wants me to be. In that journey, brothers and sisters, if I will not shut out certain distractions, if I will not limit certain choices, if I will not deny certain easy gratifications, the reality is I will not grow. And so I would encourage all of us as we are thinking about maybe looking at our lives and saying, God, where is there still a need for moral excellence? As God reveals to us, and he will because he's a loving father, reveals to us our deficiencies. There's a kind of x-raying of our hearts and lives before him. And there will come moments when you will realize my loves are disordered. My wants are misdirected. My desires are misaligned. And as God shows that to you, it's not enough to just sit and pray about it, though that matters. Can I encourage you? Diligence means... Ask anyone who's ever trained for any physical athletic event. It means you have got to set a very specific objective. I've had this at times as a father. I realize I have serious deficiencies as a dad. I can see now what they are. I need to say that in this time frame, in other words, by that date, this is what needs to change. That specifically needs to stop. That specifically has got to start. And I set a time frame for it that within six weeks, there's going to be change that looks like this. And I have action steps. I have to start doing this. I have to start stopping and thinking this. I have to start, maybe stop saying that. Start, that's, it's like you've got to have a plan, right? And you have to have accountability, usually. I need people looking in, other sets of eyes, so I don't just go soft on myself. Say, no, in this time frame, these are the changes God is calling me to, and here are the steps by which I'm going to get there, and I'm only going to get there by grace, but I'm going to get there through diligence. That is how you change. Not by reading, just by reading books and praying. Or sitting and waiting for a spirit feeling from God. Diligence, he says. And I would encourage you all, I hope I'm really coming through with a lot of grace. Not harsh or seemingly like I'm badgering you guys. But I am, I am calling you to a kind of gracious urgency. Because it is interesting how Peter, at the end of this text, and this I'll conclude with, he says... You'll notice in verse 8, he says, if you have these qualities, faith, virtue, etc., if you have these qualities and they're increasing, not perfect, but if you have these qualities and there's growth, that shows you know Jesus. That's being fruitful in knowing Jesus. That is the fruit that comes when you are with Jesus. You start to have more knowledge and self-control and steadfastness, and God-likeness, and brotherly affection, and love. That's how you know you've been with Jesus. But then in verse 9, he says, if you don't have these qualities, if you're an ignorant Christian with no self-control, you're not steadfast, you're not like God, you don't have any brotherly affection, your life is, has very little, little love in it, and yet you say, you know, you show up and sing on Sunday, he says, what that means is you're blind. 
You're so nearsighted you're blind. You are living, he says, as if it makes no difference that Jesus washed us from our sins. You have forgotten that Jesus washed you from your sins. You are living as if life with Jesus and life without Jesus are indistinguishable. And you know what's kind of shocking? Sometimes you will meet Christians who are like this. They actually live in a way that is indistinguishable from people who don't know Jesus at all, and yet they show up and sing on Sunday. It's just spiritual blindness. And of course, what then, if that were to be true of us, and thank God it isn't, because Peter goes on to say, and it's not in your text, but he says, I intend to remind you of these qualities, although I know you, I, you, you know them and are established in the truth that you have. And I don't want to say that about you guys today too. I, I'm, I'm reminding you of these things, but I know, you, I, I know this is going on in your life. So it, but if we don't have these qualities, and we need to think about the ways in which we're deficient, if we don't have these qualities, what then do we have to offer the world? That'd be my closing question to you. What do we really have to offer the world if we lack these qualities? I know many, many Christians right now feel a lot of urgency about our cultural moment, and that's probably appropriate, and they want somehow to find a way to make a difference in this very, very troubled world. How do you make a difference as a Christian in 2022? Can I say to you, brothers and sisters, above all things, this is it. This is it. Put your efforts here. And as Peter says in his first letter, you will show the excellencies of the God who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. More next week. Father, we pray you'll bless these things not just to our minds, but to our hearts and our lives. In Jesus' good name, amen.